had the blessing of hosting a wedding in the building yesterday for our director of youth ministry, Kelton, and his new wife, Britannia. There we go. And uh, we can be praying for their new life together and that God is glorified in their marriage. But as I watched them take pictures and interact with one another, it sparked memories of my own wedding, which was a long time ago now, and how many relationships have changed from then until now. I don't know for those of you who have been married for a long time, if you can look back at the same thing. As with many young people, Kelly and I had a lot of attendance at our wedding, all of whom were our friends from college, and now they're relationships that no longer exist. Much of that is because life just moves on and geographic distance makes it hard to keep connection with those people in other parts of the country. But there was also a large part of that change that occurred because of spiritual differences. As Kelly and I attempted to pursue Christ more closely, we noticed that many of our relationships that were founded on other shared experiences and feelings started to dwindle and disappear. Marriage has a way of rearranging relationships, doesn't it? In-laws join together as family, and if friends or family are not able to get along with both spouses, then those relationships fade away. Marriage is one of those big life changes that automatically reorders relationships. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. Today, we're going to be presented with a similar reordering of relationships. In our text, we will see Christ's statement on relationships and how they should be reordered when we follow him. Now, this section is a very large section. Samantha did a great job reading it, but it makes sense only if we read it all together. And so it's going to be a bit fast-paced to get through all of it, but we need to read it together to understand what Jesus is doing. We're going to see Jesus' interaction with four groups of people, the general masses, the apostles, his family, and religious leaders. And then the text we are looking at this morning will culminate with a statement by Jesus that clarifies who are those inside the kingdom of God and who are those outside the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice that I didn't do this last week directly before Christmas because I will acknowledge that this automatically is going to be a teaching that makes us tweak a little bit. In our American culture, where we lift family so high, this is going to be a tough conversation, I guarantee you. But I would ask you, as I go through the word, I want you to study it and look and see if we're coming to the same conclusion with the text. Today, we're going to be looking at the truth that the gospel of the kingdom reorders our relationships. The gospel of the kingdom reorders our relationships. Let's begin this morning with the first group. There in Mark chapter 3, we're going to look at the masses. The masses. Take a look there at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the disciples that Mark is referencing are all those who are following him. Remember that the word disciple means learner. So this is literally everybody, those that are close to him in relationship, those that are far away, those that are learning. And so the context of this verse is Jesus is trying to get away from this crowd, why would he want to do this? Isn't Jesus the one who seeks after people? Well, no. Remember, he's a human. He's 100% human, 100% God. And what we see in verse 9 is that the crowd was going to crush him. They were pressing around him to touch him. The language and words used here indicate that this was not just a kind of nice mosh pit in celebration of Jesus as Messiah. This was more akin to a Black Friday sale in which a big screen TV was selling for half off and when the doors opened, there was only one TV left. We've all seen on the news how that goes. The crowd knew that they could get something from this rabbi and healer. If they were sick and could get healing, if they were demon oppressed or possessed, they could get relief and freedom. And word has now spread to so many people that there are both Jew and Gentile coming to him from all over. Notice the group of people that it mentions that are here coming to him. There are Galileans, Judeans, people from Jerusalem, all Jews. But then also there are those from beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, uh, far north. Um, 
Idumea or Edom, as we now know it today, Jordan to the east and south. We see here the beginning of the fulfillment of much of the Old Testament prophetic declaration that God would use Israel to call the Gentile nations through the Messiah. Our reading from this morning contained this call. Uh, take a look at uh, the screen at Isaiah 55.5. Uh, this is from our reading this morning that Dallas gave us. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Literally fulfilled right here in our, in our scripture this morning. The nations of the world were starting to flock to the Messiah. Good thing, right? We're all excited about this, right? Seekers, right? Well, let's wait a minute. Let's pause for a second. Let's examine how Jesus responded and what the motivation of the masses was. We have this weird thing in America, being competitive, that numbers are good. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. You guys heard the, the phrase, any publicity is good publicity? We love numbers. If numbers come, it's spirit-filled. But is that how Jesus responds here? The motivation of the masses can be seen there in the verse, end of verse 10. They crowded around him and in doing so almost crushed him. They were treating him as if he was a magical talisman and a power that was found by simply touching him. Did they want relationship? Did they want to bow down before him? As you observe this, do you see the love of God and the love of one another? Or is it indeed more akin to the gluttony and selfishness that we see pasted on the news when a good Black Friday bargain is publicized? The people are trying to use him for their own benefit and don't care enough to stop crushing him. And interestingly, you see none of them bowing down to him. This is similar to the unclean spirits. Notice that they are not voluntarily bowing, but falling down before his authority. And many commentators agree that their statement of Jesus as the Son of God is not a submission to his authority. Otherwise, notice that they would obey his orders to cease speaking, but they don't. Rather, it's most likely that the author is pointing out that they're trying to attempt to gain power over him by using his title to overpower him. It was believed in the magical context of the day that if you knew the name of the spirit or demon and proclaimed it, you would have power over them. Jesus does not want them to proclaim the truth because they are doing it out of wrong motivation and not out of a heart of submission. So on the whole, the author is painting this as an unworthy response of the masses to Jesus. This is not a wonderful thing. This is actually painted as ugly. And this is still the case today, isn't it? When you look at the general populace and their attitude towards Jesus, they will kindly call him a mystic, a prophet, a good teacher, a good man. But when it comes to the idea of calling him king, and bowing the knee in response to him, even Christians have a hard time. Looking back now with hindsight, unavailable at the time, I believe this might have been an error in the seeker-friendly movement in the late 1900s and early 2000s. The seeker movement was born out of a great heart to reach the lost, but there seemed to be a misunderstanding about what people were actually seeking. Were they seeking Jesus as king? Or were they seeking the therapeutic benefits and goodies that he promised? And so, when many who were in that generation were presented with a gospel that served their needs, their desires, their goal of prosperity, and their nationalism, they jumped on board to a nationalistic, prosperity-driven folk gospel that orbited around them and their needs and not Jesus as king. But when presented with the gospel that not only speaks of forgiveness of sins and resurrection, but also of a kingdom in which Jesus reigns, and those who are inside the kingdom are required to submit to his will, there is an unease and even a vitriolic response that this kind of speech is works-based and not grace-based. But that is patently false. Amen. You see, many can say that they believe in Jesus Many can say that they are Christians based on our nationalistic folk religion. You may even be sitting here today saying, I'm a Christian, but my question is, what fruit from your life actually proves that? In the end, when they stand before Jesus, this crowd, in the end, when you and I stand before Jesus, what is our motivation in following him? Is it to get the goodies? Is it to get eternal life? Well, that's not a bad thing if it's secondary to wanting relationship with Jesus and submitting to his will as king. Is it for Jesus to be at our beck and call to give us a good life and make us feel warm and fuzzy inside? Or is our motivation to serve him on the mission he is determined to proclaim his glory to a world that's fading away? 
Jesus gives us a very similar picture into this view that I'm talking about in the parable of the wedding feast from Matthew 22. Would you turn there with me? Go ahead and go to Matthew 22 and take a look at verse 1 there. Give me an amen when you get there. How about the rest of you? You got there? Okay, good. All right, Matthew 22, verse 1, let's take a look there. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, so who's this talking about right here? The Jews believed that Yahweh was the king of the universe, and who's his son? Go ahead, guys, we're, we're tri triune folks. Jesus, there we go, good, okay. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Who's this talking about? God, Yahweh, reached out to a group of people who decided they didn't want to follow him. Who's that talking about? Israel, right. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Okay? So here Jesus pictures the history of God's relationship with Israel and his attempt to reach out to the people of Israel and invite them into intimate union. For many, their response is lack of care. The phrase here, they paid no attention, is literally, they didn't care. Didn't care. For others, their response was to treat the prophets who'd been sent on behalf of Yahweh shamefully and kill them. So what's the father do? Take a look. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the father opens up the gathering to anyone who may come. But when the king goes into it, notice what happens. Okay, who's this talking about that he's opened it up now to anyone? Gentiles. It's opened up to the Gentiles as well. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Okay, notice this guy's in the kingdom. He's in the hall. He's with the king. He's hanging out all the time, right? But he has no wedding garment. And he said to him, the king said to him, friend, notice how kindly he approaches him. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, now this seems like a really strong reaction if we don't know the context. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Is this portraying God as this like fashionista who's really upset with clothing? No, what's going on here? He goes to look and checks to see how they arrived there, and he notices that some have snuck in who were not invited, and he sees this by their garment. What garment is this? Well, Isaiah 61 tells us what it is. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The garment of salvation is what these people were wearing. Theologians call this the imputed righteousness of God. You see, Jesus came to earth and became sin on the cross, a man who knew no sin, who was perfectly innocent, that you and I might take his place as the righteous one, pure, sinless, under the eyes of God. Jesus died on the cross in your place and mine, paying the price for our sin so that we might be seen as righteous by the Father. And those that are within the kingdom are those who have accepted the garment of salvation. If you have not proclaimed Jesus as Savior and as King and accepted his garment of salvation today, I beg of you to do so. Don't sit in blindness thinking that because you are an American, you are a Christian. Don't sit in blindness that because you're more moral than other people, you're a Christian. Don't sit in blindness that because you come to Christmas and Easter services, you're a Christian. These things are false. And if that blinds you, you need to accept Jesus as King and Savior. Those that are within the kingdom are those who have accepted the garment of salvation. But you see, it doesn't stop there. You see, in these days, the reason we can understand this context is that the tradition was that those 
who would attend at the request and invitation of the king, they would be given the attire for the occasion if they didn't have it. The king would never invite a pauper without giving them the clothing that they needed. So when the king approaches the person to ask what happened, what the people listening in this day of Matthew knew was that this was a person who refused the gift of the attire of salvation even though it was offered and yet still wanted the goodies of the feast. That is why the king reacts the way he does. This was a person who wanted the goodies of being around the king without the required submission to the king. Dear church, I would proclaim to you that this is a large portion of American Christians, so-called. A scary prospect if we actually think about it. And this is one that should cause us to be very cautious that our motivation and response to the gospel offered by Jesus Christ is a genuine response that treats him as both Savior and King. I want to ask you today, do you want just the goodies Jesus brings or do you desire to submit to Christ and his people? Well, let's go back and let's take a look at the second group of people in Mark. Good questions to ask this morning. When we move on and we have this contrast with the next group of people, the chosen and sent ones. And the author intends to contrast here. First, you have a crowd that is just seeking after signs and wonders, their own self-interest. But then you have this group of the chosen and sent ones. Let's take a look there at Mark 3.13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he had also named apostles. The word apostle in Greek is sent ones. So that they might be with him to learn, and he might send them, apostles, out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, which would be, like Jesus, an act that would establish their authority as the basis of the church. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, or Rock, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Mark continues the theme of Jesus' relationships to people that surround him with the calling of the 12 apostles. Now notice a few things with me here in the text. First, the author very much intends for us here to be making some interesting parallels. There are 12 disciples that are in parallel with the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus goes to a mountain to prepare and calls uh, from this mountain the representative and restored Israel to himself. It's a call back to Exodus 19 through 21 where God formally assembles Israel at Mount Sinai. The author of the gospel according to Luke gives us a bit more background on the weightiness of this situation by saying this directly prior before he says this exact same thing. In Luke 6:12 he says in those days uh, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Jesus took a ton of time trying to figure out who these leaders, the foundation of the church, the restored and representative Israel would be. And the author of the gospel intentionally tells us this to contrast it back towards the masses and contrast it forward to his family which we'll see in a minute. Jesus appointed 12 for very specific reasons, you'll notice next. From all those that were following Jesus to learn, he chose 12, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, as verse 14 says. They were to be the beginning of the body of Christ, the beginning of the authority of the church, that would bear both Christ's character and his authority. These men were to be the representatives of the new Israel, what Paul calls in Galatians, the Israel of God. Now this is from Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. Take a look at it there on the screen. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Throughout the Old Testament, it is spoken of that the church would be drawn from both Jew and Gentile. Now, to be clear, if any of you are wondering, Hans, are you a replacement theologian? I am not at all. 
The Lord opened the borders of who his chosen people were, and they are now both Jew and Gentile. To be a replacement theologian, you have to believe that Gentiles, the church, replaced Israel. That's not true at all. The church is both Jew and Gentile. God is making good on his promises to the Jews as well as to the rest of the nations. Now, in these apostles, the beginning of the restored and redeemed Israel, the true Israel of God was going to be invigorated and become the basis for the fullness of the restored kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament that we are still in the midst of waiting for it to come. There are countless, of pa- countless pages of ink spent trying to find inherent meanings in these names that are here on the, the pages before us. But quite honestly, none of it is cohesive, nor does it seem to be the main point of Mark's passage. Rather, it's meant as identification for those who are chosen. Now, one could quickly make the parallel that as true believers are told in Revelation that our names will be found in the, written in the book of life, these men have their names specifically chosen by Jesus. Now, this section is a conundrum for those who love to debate the topic of once saved, always saved, chosen or not, things like Calvinism, Arminianism. Could Mark be attempting to state, as it is clear in other passages, that the Father predestines and chooses those who are saved. We have to look at this and say it seems so, yes. But then does it also mention that one who is chosen, such as Judas Iscariot, could fall away into damnation? Well, yes, it seems so there as well. So maybe Jesus is both Calvinist and Arminian. We don't know. You might ask me, which is it, Hans? Which do you land on? I don't have an answer for you. That's why I call myself Calminian. It's a good cop-out. What I can state undeniably for you based on this section is this. In order for us to be saved at all, Jesus must call us. This is the statement that he makes in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We are so pervasively depraved by sin that we cannot save ourselves. Jesus must first call us. We know that from this text. Secondly, we can get from this that if Jesus calls, what's our responsibility? We answer. (laughs) As much as it is up to you, you make the decision to follow or not. Well, Hans, is it him choosing me or is it me choosing him? As much as it is up to you, you choose to follow him when he calls. And just to be clear, he's calling every single one of you in this room. And lastly, we see from the text that if you're with Jesus, you can be assured that you are secure in him if your mission is his mission. If you are on mission with Christ in terms of seeking sanctification, uniting with his people, going out to reach the lost, raising up Jesus as king, then you are most likely safe with him. And so we begin to see this background that the author is painting, contrasting those inside the kingdom with those outside the kingdom. Those inside pursue the mission of Christ and submission to him as king. Those outside may want the goodies, may even want the relationship, may even believe they are part of the relationship or kingdom. But when it comes right down to it, they refuse to submit to Christ. The author goes on to describe the various relationships people have with Jesus, but he starts to take a slightly different angle. Here we see him moving into those who might be in open conflict with Jesus, and those are the next sections we're going to cover. And this is an interesting section because we see some of the literary sandwiching that we talked about in the introduction to Mark. He's talked about the masses. He's talked about the apostles. But now he's going to have a section where he goes family, religious leaders, and then family again, literary sandwiching. We'll see the section in verses 31 through 35, and the section in verses 20 uh, through 21, talking about his family. And then in the middle, the meat, the third story, is about how the religious leaders respond to him. All of this is meant to go together to show contrasting inside and outside the kingdom. So let's now look at the next section, and we're going to see Jesus' relationship with his family. Because, let's ask a question. If anyone should be in the kingdom of Jesus, it should be people related to the Messiah, right? Right? Well, let's take a look. We're going to look at the family next. And let's read Mark 3, verses 20 through 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
Isn't it interesting to see the various reactions to Jesus? This section is extremely interesting, given some of the questions we asked and discussed last Sunday and on Christmas Eve. Here we see the family coming to restrain Jesus and seize him. And presumably this family includes Mary, the one who had so willingly received the announcement of the angel in Luke and who is mentioned in the last section of our teaching today. So we start to wonder, had she forgotten the announcement of an angel in broad daylight? Had the monotony of raising Jesus over 30 years blinded her to the fact that he was the Messiah announced by the angel? We don't know. But the grammar behind the statement they were saying is that of continuous speech. They were saying over and over, he is out of his mind. What we don't know is if they thought he was in fact mentally ill and they wished to care for him, or if Jesus was causing them so much grief and shame for the family name that they wanted to put an end to it. We don't know the motivation. It's not boldly explicit here, but we have to wonder if the author is trying to point our minds back to the Old Testament story of Joseph with his own family. Let's take a look there really quickly. Would you turn with me to Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11? Beginning of your Bible, go to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, or travelings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. And then he goes through and he speaks about all of his offspring. And it says that Joseph came from them. It says, verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. What's that called? It's called envy, right? They were envious of his position. So they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Those who are Jews would know this story. And it's not explicitly stated, but I would pose to you that this is very reminiscent. We can quickly see the parallels. Joseph, the type of Christ to come, was going to be put in place as one out of Israel to be used by Yahweh to save Israel. But to do so, he would have to, in a sense, reign over them. But when Joseph begins to exercise his authority, even in simply stating it out loud, his family reacts in rebellion and reviling. Those closest to Joseph, those closest to Jesus, respond the same way that all fallen humanity responds to the required submission to Christ. Jesus pictures this sentiment in a parable in Luke 19, when he pictures people responding, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. You have to remember, Jesus didn't float around on a cloud with a giant host of angels singing behind him. He literally walked around as you and I do. Yes, he was able to walk on water. Yes, he was able to heal. But this was a human man who showed up and said, hey, by the way, I am the Messiah and I'm your king. He didn't do it explicitly. He did it in parables, so only those that were truly his knew it. But then they would bow down to him, in a sense. The apostles, they would submit to him. They would follow him. Yes, with bumps along the road, but for the most part, they gave their lives to him. Can you imagine how you and I would have responded as human beings to this human being who proclaimed to be the Messiah? It brings great humility to me that I would probably have been the one who said to him, I'm not going to have you reign over me. How quickly would we have done that? How lucky are we? How grace-given are we to be in 2019, almost 2020, to look back and be able to look back with humility and say, yeah, he actually was the king because he resurrected. The truth of a person's willingness to submit to Christ as Lord and King is found in how they submit to Christ 
his commands, and his people. Those that are not of Christ are quick to find a reason why they should not have to submit. With every passing day that I pastor, all the characteristics of a true Christian are more and more being reduced to simple humility when conviction is brought. Even Jesus' family was crying out, we will not have this man reign over us. That is not the heart of the kingdom of God. And so to follow Jesus is to raise your allegiance to Christ over and above your allegiance to even your own personal family. To be clear, this does not mean cutting off those relationships. To be clear, for anyone to require that of anyone else is indeed a cult and you should run from it. But the author is clear, as he will emphasize even further in a moment, to follow Jesus means a reordering, a reprioritizing of all relationships, not just family. And this is so applicable to many in the world. In Burkina Faso, if you're raised Muslim and decide to convert to Christianity, you can be assured that your family will cut you out. Losing your family to follow Christ is an everyday occurrence. It does not lessen the pain or the weight of it, but it's a known result of conversion in that country. But we're an odd country for many different reasons. Anecdotally, I have seen it far easier for people from non-believing atheistic families to convert to Christ than for people in apathetic, nationalistic, prosperity-driven, folk-religion Christian families to begin following Christ wholeheartedly. When things like attending church or small groups or serving regularly or stepping into membership clash with extended family beliefs, all of a sudden, many of you know this because you're the ones who have told me about it, the word cult starts getting thrown around. Mission fellowship is a cult. Well, I would be a wealthy man for every time I've heard people describe the negativity and disdain shown towards them by family when they get passionate about serving Christ in this church. Zeal for Christ often gets branded by family as cultish, legalistic, Pharisaic, and on and on the list goes. What Jesus faced in his day with his own family still exists in great measure today. And I would suggest to you that it's one of the greatest barriers to revival and true heartfelt worshiping of Christ in the United States today. Allegiance to family above Christ will lead to no allegiance to Christ at all. You cannot serve two masters. And many of us are still stuck in dysfunctional family systems that proclaim to be Christian rather than stepping into the truth of who Jesus is and what he requires of you. What it takes is for those who are zealous about following Christ, who are learning the strength of good biblical theology and exegetical preaching, to stand firm on what they know to be true and lovingly model for those who are their family members what it is to follow Christ with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. To follow Christ will bring conflict even among family. And we're going to see in a minute what Christ calls us to do if that is the case. But first, we see Jesus interacting not just with the family, but the religious leaders. Because again, I'll ask you, if anyone should be in the kingdom of God, it should be religious leaders. It should be pastors. It should be deacons, right? It should be all these students of the Torah, right? Well, wrong. Some of you have even come from churches where pastors have shown their true colors over time. It's a disgusting thing when we as pastors let down the people that we're serving. Well, let's take a look here at Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. We'll see how he deals with religious leaders. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house, notice he just got done, the author of Mark did, talking about the household of Jesus, the family. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house." Now, what's interesting here in talking to the religious leaders is that it's contrasted in the sandwich with the family. With his family, Jesus is accused of being mentally ill. Here with the scribes, the Torah guardians and lawyers, they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul, another name for the adversary of God, Satan. In other words, they believe and are accusing that Jesus is in league with the adversary of Yahweh and part of the kingdom of darkness. 
He is in league, they say, with the prince of demons himself. But Jesus quickly responds with a simple statement of logic. He says, if I am of the kingdom of darkness and you see me casting out those in allegiance to Satan and the kingdom of darkness, then the kingdom is fighting against itself and it's eventually going to crumble. It's slowly going to come to an end. His point is this. Pay attention to kingdoms and allegiance. There are only two sides. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of light. And you and I, at any given time, are acting and speaking out of allegiance to one of those. Well, Hans, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the kingdom of light. Well, that may be true. But that's why we have to constantly examine our actions and our words to see if we're acting in the light, if we're bringing things into the light, if we're acting in the flesh or in the spirit. Jesus is proclaiming that because he is able to cast out demons and free those under their oppression, he is saying, guys, I'm plundering the kingdom of darkness. I'm against the kingdom of darkness, which makes me part of the kingdom of light. Now, Jesus, in saying this, means that he is in fact bound the strong man of the kingdom of darkness, speaking of the adversary. This does not mean he's bound forever. This does not mean he's bound completely. It simply means that he has bound the adversary so he can start freeing those that are oppressed by demons and plundering those that are in the kingdom of darkness, meaning you and I, so that he might save us. Now, this section has often been called the section that tells us the one unforgivable sin. And as humans who love to keep sinning, we really want to know where the line is in our sin, don't we? Right? It's kind of like our kids, right? I, I have a funny saying. Maybe you think I'm a terrible parent, but that's okay. Whenever my daughter says, how many more bites do I have to eat, right? I know what she's doing. She's saying, where's the line in the sand where I can be just obedient enough? And I will look at her and lovingly say, Kara, I do not ever negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> and when she has asked me in the past what that means, I tell her, eat until you are full. That is always what we do. You never need to ask where the line is. You know what obedience is. And then she eats as much as she needs to. And when she comes back later and says, I didn't eat enough, we say, too bad, so sad, you should have eaten more, right? That's what good parents do, right? <laughs> so the same thing here. We want to know the line in the sand where we can go directly up to it and all these sins are forgivable and grace will come to us and we can keep doing them. But, you know, this one, we don't want to go that far. So what is it, Hans? What's the damnable sin? How far can we go without actually getting to eternal damnation? But I would submit to you that that is not the main point of this small text at all. It is possibly a secondary output of the text, but it's not at its core. Because look at verses, three, or verses 28 through 30. He says there, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What Jesus is telling the religious leaders is, pay attention to the kingdoms and allegiances. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the very spirit of Yahweh himself, the king of the universe and the ruler of the kingdom of light. By these religious leaders stating that Jesus works for the kingdom of darkness, they have mischaracterized his allegiance, thus committing blasphemy. Jesus is clear to point out, pay attention to my works and see where they suggest my allegiance lies. By mischaracterizing Jesus, they have committed an unpardonable sin because they, in doing so, have aligned with the kingdom of darkness. And I can tell you, dear church, you want to know what the unforgivable sin is? It's to align with the kingdom of darkness and never repent. The word is clear. Even, even in that case, there's still a chance for grace and repentance. Bow the knee and repent. But if not... If you continue unrepentant in allegiance with the kingdom of darkness, causing harm to the kingdom of light, then the word is clear. It's an unforgivable sin. Look with me at Galatians 5. Would you turn there with me? Go to Galatians 5 and take a look at the writings of Paul. Galatians 5, verse 16. And compare it to what Jesus just said, especially if we were to take that verse as this is the one unpardonable sin. What, what Paul's about to say here would almost contradict that because he gives multiple. Look at verse 16. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, just to be clear, this isn't an order, this isn't an order of importance because if so, sexual immorality would be bad, but orgies would be pretty low, right? Is that what he's saying here? No, this is literally bookended by sexual immorality are two of the most obvious ones, but look at the rest of them that sometimes are less obvious. Now, notice what he says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound like unpardonable sin? He's saying those that persist in these things. But those that repent from these, I can give you scripture after scripture that says if you do these, but then you re repent. I mean, Paul even says, you, Corinthians, you are like these people, but you've repented. At any point, repentance is available. But if not, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you continue in fits of anger, if you continue in rivalries, if you continue in orgies, if you continue in sowing division, if you continue in envy, if you continue in drunkenness, you will not, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what Paul says here. He's saying a very clear, if you don't repent and follow the will of God, you won't inherit the kingdom. In other words, your allegiance is elsewhere. But then look at what he says next in verse 22. But, he, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Conceit is one of the opposites on the spectrum of humility, is it not? So don't become unhumble, but instead walk with the Spirit. Notice that those who are Christ will manifest actions that are in line with the Spirit and in line with allegiance to the kingdom of light. They will operate in the light. Now, dear brothers and sisters, rather than asking if we have committed the unforgivable sin, Ask the question of if your life is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And if not, and your brothers and sisters bring you reproof that this is the case, it's time to repent and submit to your brothers and sisters. The fact is that there is no unpardonable sin as long as repentance is active in your life. The Lord does not ask perfection. He asks repentance. Amen. But if you act on a trajectory in life where you're not submitting to Christ's word, not submitting to his people, and showing works of the flesh in your life, you are most likely in league with the kingdom of darkness and need to repent. And guys, that can be me too. That's why there's room in 1 Timothy to call even elders out and do it before all people so that they may, re, they may be rebuked for the good of their own soul. We all need to act in the light. Again, Christ does not require perfection. He requires humility that will lead to repentance when conviction comes through the word of God, through personal personal conscience, or his people, all by the work of the Holy Spirit. But these religious leaders, back in Mark, they refuse. They see the gracious and glorified fruit of Christ, and they mischaracterize him as being on the enemy's team when they, in fact, are the ones allegiant to the adversary of the Messiah and are blind to the fact. You see, folks, all these small, self-contained stories written down by the author of Mark are providing the anticipation and the energy leading us to this small section. Because we arrive here at this last place in Mark chapter 3 with questions. Are these masses who have thronged to Christ, are they in the kingdom? Are the apostles who are the sent ones? What about Judas Iscariot? How about Jesus' family? How about the religious leaders? Who's in? Who's out, Jesus? We ask. And they've each started to probe the idea of who is inside and who is outside the kingdom of God. And we will finish with Jesus' answer this morning. The fifth thing you can write down is that he's bringing us clarification of kingdom insiders 
and kingdom outsiders. Now, just to be clear, I actually didn't come up with this verbiage. This was verbiage used by every one of the commentaries I looked at describing this section, insiders and outsiders. I bring that up because immediately we as Americans, many of us respond with aggressive defensiveness. Wait a minute, I thought the church was supposed to be a place where all are welcome. Insider, outsider, I thought the kingdom of God was gracious and open to all. Well, dear church, don't confuse invitation with who's inside and who's outside. It is true that the invitation has been extended to all. But let's look at a couple of passages that clarify for us that we didn't come up with the idea of inside and outside, Jesus did. Let's take a look first at the screen here for Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, outside what? Outside the city, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom, all the metaphors and symbols used in Revelation to talk about those saved by Jesus. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, immediately, all those who may not be Christians would say, how dare you? That's not me. But it's where your allegiance lies. If your allegiance is not to Christ as king, walking in the fruit of the spirit, but your action shows something different, that might be you if it's an ongoing, pervasive, unrepentant way of life. This is picturing the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It's pictured as a fortress, and notice that there is an inside and an outside. Jesus is very clear. You can proclaim him to be Lord. You can even be those that supposedly work in his name. But the question is, are you in relationship with him as Savior, Lord, and King? Now, many times when I've preached something similar to this, sometimes I've had people come up to me and say, you should not sow so much fear in people, Hans. What you've done today by saying this and asking the question is, made people fear their salvation. And I look at them and I say, good. You know why? It's no different than when somebody who's a brother of mine comes up to me, okay? Uh, they come up to me and they say, hey, Hans, Dude, you haven't been treating your wife all that well, brother. And, you know, if I were her, I wouldn't take it much longer. I'd be a little bit fearful of how you're treating her. Now, would it be a proper, healthy, godly response to go, how dare you make me fear my relationship with my wife? No, what should I do in humility? I should say, praise God, you brought it to me. I, wow, I need to go apologize to her and start rebuilding the relationship immediately. Thank you for helping me save my marriage. That's the humble response. That's the humble response of a Christian. You see, I'm not in fear of losing my relationship with my wife unless I'm not acting in relationship with my wife. And then I should fear. The same thing is true of us as Christians. If you are pursuing Jesus, if you are loving Jesus, if you are loving his people, if you are humble when conviction is brought, if you are with his people and seeking non-believers in his name, do you really need to fear your salvation? Absolutely not. Just like if I'm loving my wife, talking to my wife, listening to my wife, caring for my wife, being empathetic to my wife, do I need to worry about my marriage? I don't. Are you in relationship with him as Savior, Lord, and King? Because look at what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 21. Do you think anybody came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, how dare you make people doubt their salvation? Do you think they said that to him here? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice those words. They're going to come up again here shortly. On that day, the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They're really religious. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You see, their works were showing that they were part of the kingdom of sin, part of the kingdom of lawlessness, and yet they still presented this spiritual front. And Jesus says to them, away from me. Our earlier parables, and this one included, ask the question, who are you allegiant to? 
Each of us must individually hold ourselves accountable to the question of whether or not our behavior is kingdom behavior in submission to the king or not. And that is exactly what Jesus, is finished with, Jesus finishes with in our last section today. Look at Mark 3, 31, all the way through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Well, if he's a good Jewish boy who follows the Ten Commandments and he should be obeying his parents and he's, you know, he's a good, let's say he's American, right? Well, he should go to mom and dad because blood is thicker than water and you never disobey your parents, right? What if they're acting contrary to the will of God? Then you absolutely, by God's command, disobey your parents to pursue righteousness, not just to be disobedient. But look at what he says. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Wait, so he's one of those weird people that just does the choose your own family adventure? Is that what it is? That's what millennials do today, right? They just cast aside generations and tradition and, and they don't follow their families anymore. They're just choosing their own family. No, notice he makes a definition. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, surely all the groups that we looked at today, out of all of them, Jesus' family would be those who he would claim are intimately close to him. Surely Jesus would submit to family above all else. After all, it was the cultural norm even more so than today. And yet, Jesus drops this bomb of truth right in the lap of all those listening then and now. He would absolutely agree with the point that family ties are most important. But what he has done here is elevate the family that is formed based on submitting to the will of the Father God over and above the ties of earthly physical family. Let me say that again. He's absolutely stating that family comes first but he's redefined what family is. What matters is if the person does the will of God. And if so, that person is my mother, my brother and sister. And if not, then that changes things. In fact, what that means, if they are not my mother and brother and sisters, guess what that makes them? Because their allegiance is not to the same God. It makes them my enemy. And what does Christ command us to do to our enemies? love them. He reorders all relationships. The gospel of the kingdom reorders all relationships. What matters is if the person does the will of God. If so, then they are your family and therefore you're allegiant to the same God. If not, then they are enemies of the kingdom you belong to. And what that requires of you is that you love them and try and lead them to Christ. Notice the complete reordering of relationships that Jesus suggests. And guys, if you're second-guessing Mark, and maybe this was Aaron, maybe they just threw this in at the last moment, let's read the harder section from Matthew. Do not think, he says in Matthew 10, 34, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute, we just got done singing about that on Christmas, Jesus, right? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is Jesus saying, cut off all relationships, become a cult. Don't deal with anyone else who's not a Christian. It's funny, I see this all the time with Christians. We do this in business. Well, my dentist, they're a Christian, so they must be a great dentist. My immediate question is, well, do they know teeth? Well, my, my repair person for my house, they're, they're a Christian, so they've got to be good. Well, are they good at construction? My heart surgeon, they're a Christian, so they must be. Do they know how to work on your heart? <laughs> right? But when it comes to actual relationships, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm dating a non-believer. It's okay. You know, they're, they're a really nice person. Oh, mom and dad, yeah, they're not really following the Lord anymore, but man, they give me such great wisdom. What? It's completely confusing. Jesus is not calling us to cut off relationship. He's calling us to lift the unity we have in Christ and the submitting to the will of the Father over all other earthly ties. 
And brothers and sisters, if you are one of the lucky few that are part of a family that has members sold out for Christ, sold out for Christ, embrace it and rejoice in it. Not only are those people your earthly family, but they are your heavenly family as well. What the author is proclaiming to us is that when we submit to Christ as king, all relationships must now fall under his authority and definition for the good, for our good, and for his glory. When we follow Christ as king and savior, all relationships fall into two categories, those in the kingdom and those outside. And at that point, relationships within the kingdom become our priority. Why? Because together, that is how we accomplish the mission of God to sanctify and edify one another so that we can then go out and reach the lost. And then as a body, we collectively go back into those relationships with non-believers for one purpose and one purpose only, to reach them with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So many apathetic believers wonder why they lose zeal for Christ when all their closest friends are non-believers pulling them away. So many apathetic believers wonder why they're not following Christ when the person they're dating or the person they marry is an apathetic Christian in name only. So many apathetic believers wonder why their walk is so half-hearted, not realizing they are blind to the fact that they're following in the footsteps of apathetic parents and family who they spend most of their time with and model their life after. To follow Christ requires a reordering of relationships. Dear brothers and sisters, I know this is a hard teaching. I know that I've had passion in my voice because I've watched as people who desire a zealous relationship with Jesus slowly fade away because they're unwilling to follow Jesus' example of reordering relationships. And I want to ask you today, have you surrounded yourself with those who do the will of the Father or are you continuing to be led and influenced in relationships with those who are obviously fighting against the will of the Father. I see this even in Christians. No, they're my best friend. I have to stick close to them. Have you called them to repentance? Because that's what a friend does. Do you have people around you that have claimed to follow Christ but are acting contrary to the will of the Father as it's pointedly spoken in his word? Maybe they're even close family or friends. If so, are you calling them to follow the will of the Father and repent? Notice, just to throw this in here for me, notice for me how quickly Jesus reorders relationships when one of his spiritual brothers goes against the will of the Father. One of the people he's talking about here is Peter. He's my brother, man. Take a look at what happens when Peter acts contrary to the will of God. This is from Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's kind. He's nice. It's, it's just an idea. It's just an opinion, right? No, it's contrary to the mission of God. Notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't, he doesn't give him any room whatsoever. He turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, adversary. That's what the word Satan means. Get behind me, adversary. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Following Christ not only requires a reordering of relationships, but it requires a reordering of relationships in that we strive every day to keep one another on the path of following the will of the Father. And when we notice ourselves or one another going astray, true disciples bring one another back and say, follow the will of the Father. The kingdom of God and the good news that we gain access by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ commands us to reorder relationships and to reorder the way we treat relationships so that Jesus is glorified and we are sanctified. Mission Fellowship, are we visitors? Are we a church of brothers and sisters who walk in the will of the Father? I hope that we as a church take this reordering of relationships to heart as we step into the new year. I hope that we take this seriously as something that Jesus commands and the author of Mark gives us tons of information to understand the emphasis on the point of verse 35 there. As we enter a time of worship now, I want each of us to take stock of our relationships and ask the question of whether or not you have reordered them based on Christ.
If not, then it is time to make some changes. Not because I ask it, not because this church asks it, but because your Savior and King requires it. If that is how Jesus viewed relationships, then shouldn't it be how we as his disciples view relationships too? Let those who have ears hear what Christ says to his disciples.